In the name of Israel's God, we mean to conquer or die trying. Hello and welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about Chapter 3 of Saints Volume 2, The Word and Will of the Lord. Today, we're really excited to welcome to the studio Eric Smith. He is an editor of Saints Volume 2, and also he's the general editor of the Joseph Smith Papers. Welcome, Eric. Thanks for having me. I look forward to our discussion today. Well, Eric, we are so excited to have you here to talk about this chapter of Saints Volume 2. Right off the bat, we see Wilford Woodruff. And as I was thinking about Wilford Woodruff, I have these pictures in my mind of him teaching the saints in England. He's this incredible orator, and he's just a powerful missionary, but he couldn't even convince his own family. What was your take on Wilford and his experience trying to preach the gospel to his family? Yeah, Ben, when you mentioned that to me, I think immediately of someone like Lehi in the Book of Mormon. This is someone that knows he's a prophet, Lehi, and shares the gospel with his family. And some of them, like Nephi, are valiant and they listen. And others, like Laman and Lemuel in the Book of Mormon, don't believe their father's claims. And I guess part of the point is, it doesn't matter how strong your testimony is, your family members have the free agency to choose whether they will follow the Lord. And a lot of our listeners probably find themselves in that situation with a parent or a sibling or a child that they're concerned about. And all you can do is do your best and pray and love and support that person. So we're also introduced to someone named Thomas Kane. This is the first time that we meet him in Saints Volume 2, but then he's kind of a recurring person. Can you tell us who is Thomas Kane? What do we know about him and his interactions with the saints? So Thomas Kane is a young man who meets members of the church in Philadelphia in May of 1846. He meets them at a church conference there. And at this time, Thomas is only about 24 years old, and he's recently become an attorney in that city. So that's why he's in Philadelphia. And he learns from the saints there that there's other saints out in Illinois who are starting to migrate westward. And for some reason, just the way he was born and raised, Thomas has a natural inclination to want to help people that are in minority groups or who are downtrodden in some way. So later in his life, Thomas actually ends up becoming a supporter for women's rights. He speaks out against the death penalty. He becomes a very active abolitionist, and he actually helps fugitive slaves escape. So you can see that helping members of the church who are in a desperate situation would be consistent with his efforts to help other people. Now, Thomas is politically very well connected because his father is a U.S. District Court judge. And so using his political contacts, the young Thomas is able to arrange meetings in Washington, D.C., between a member of the church named Jesse Little and politicians. And he's actually able to broker this arrangement with the President of the United States to have a group of members of the church join the United States Army. At this time, the United States is at war with Mexico. And because you have members of the church crossing the plains in Iowa, they are closer to the action than a lot of other groups of the army. So it's kind of a win-win. The United States gets some soldiers out there and the church is desperate for income to buy food and other supplies that will help in the journey. Sometimes the way we tell this story about the raising of the Mormon battalion, 
we tell it as if it was a negative thing for members of the church to be asked to join the military. Right. But Brigham Young actually sees it as this huge positive, and he actually says, this is the first time the government has ever done anything that will help the Latter-day Saints. That's amazing. I had no idea that Thomas Kane played such an important role in helping to get the Mormon battalion established and that really we were trying for it. We, the church, wanted this. We needed this so that we could get funds to help them move west. That's Precisely. And in this chapter, Cain actually comes out and he meets with the apostles out in Mosquito Creek, which is their camp on the Missouri River, and they become impressed with him and they see that the Lord is actually working through him. And in the decades to come, we'll see Cain again several times in this volume. He becomes friends of Brigham Young. They actually exchange letters over the years he is a big advocate for Utah statehood. He's a friend of the church back east when there's difficulties with the practice of plural marriage. Yes, he will be an incredible friend to the church, and our listeners are going to get to know him, and the readers of Saints will get to know him even better as we move forward in Saints Volume 2. There's also some other issues that are happening here. As the Saints begin moving west, there are some left behind. And I, I thought maybe we could just play a little clip here from the book and talk about what the reaction was and what the action was to help out those who were left behind in Nauvoo. The Quorum also knew that impoverished saints were still in Nauvoo at the mercy of mobs and false prophets. If the apostles did not do more to help these saints as they had promised to do in the temple at the October conference, then the quorum would be breaking a solemn covenant with the saints and the Lord. Acting decisively, the quorum resolved to send three of the apostles in camp, Parley Pratt, Orson Hyde, and John Taylor, to England to lead the British mission. They then sent wagons, teams, and supplies back to Nauvoo to evacuate the poor. So, Eric, can you comment a little bit about this first rescue effort, which will not be the last time that the apostles have to send rescue wagons back to help? So, one of the points here to remind readers of is that moving this many people to the West is an enormous logistical challenge. You can't have everybody leave at one time. The roads can accommodate that. You wouldn't have enough supplies and food. So Brigham Young and the other leaders of the church set it up in phases, and the idea is that these poor people will be in Nauvoo. Now, they're not left there abandoned. You have local leadership there, and the idea is that's the best place to take care of them until they're ready to come. But the leaders of the church have made a covenant in the Nauvoo temple that they will take care of the poor, and so they're faithful to that covenant. They send back supplies and wagons to help the members of the church who are poor in Nauvoo. And for me, it's kind of a reminder that we're all on our own journey today as well, and we have a responsibility not just to get our own selves and our own families to the destination, but to watch out for people in our neighborhoods and our other people in our families and friends. And sometimes that means helping people financially, helping people move. That can mean spiritual help to those so that nobody gets left behind. So in addition to these saints that we have coming across the plains or preparing to come across the plains, we read about another group of saints who set sail from New York, and so they're kind of going a different route. Um, can you tell us a little bit about their journey as they try to make their way to the Salt Lake Valley? So the Brooklyn is a ship that leaves the New York Harbor in early February 1846, and coincidentally, they leave the harbor the very same day that Brigham Young and other saints start rolling wagons west out of Nauvoo. The ship has about 240 members of the church on it, they sail 
for about six months, so it's a very long voyage. They sail something on the order of 24,000 miles. I've seen people that will say this is one of the longest religious pilgrimages in recorded history. Our readers, you can look on the Saints website, if you look at the electronic version of the book or if you happen to have a print copy, the route that they took is on our first opening map in the book, and it's circuitous. It goes clear out to Hawaii. You look at that and it seems so weird. Why are they going all the way to Hawaii when they need to get to the California coast? I don't actually know the answer to that, other than at this time when they land in San Francisco, there's only about 150 people living there in a small village. So my assumption is that that's a main route that seafarers would go to get to Hawaii and replenish their provisions before continuing on. So when they arrive at Yerba Buena, soon to become San Francisco, there's a flag that is flying. And today it doesn't seem strange to us. It's the American flag. But to them, this was kind of a shock. And really, they were disappointed. Right. So when the saints leave Nauvoo in February 1846, and these other saints are leaving Brooklyn, California is actually part of Mexico. And a war between the United States and Mexico breaks out in April of 1846. So it's while these Brooklyn saints are out on the ocean. By that summer, the United States Navy has raised the American flag in San Francisco Harbor. Now, the war between Mexico and the United States doesn't actually end until the treaty in February of 1848. But it's very difficult for the Mexican government to defend these parts of California because it's so far away from the center of their government and where most of their people are. Now, you have to keep in mind that when the saints leave Nauvoo, they have very bitter feelings towards local and national government leaders. The saints are driven out of Missouri in 1838 and 1839, and in the years after that, they make many petitions, including to the President of the United States, to have money given to them or other redress for all these losses, and they feel like nobody ever gives them the the time of day. So when they leave Illinois and when the saints leave on the Brooklyn, they're intentionally wanting to go somewhere outside of the United States of America. So it's kind of like if you worked for a company and you decided you wanted to leave that company because you didn't like the direction it was going, and you joined some other company, only to find out that it was bought by the first company. And you think, oh, bad merger, (laughs) bad merger. (laughs) So it's difficult for members of the Church of the United States today to see things that way, because there's such good relations between the church and the government. Lots of members of the church in America are very patriotic, but it wasn't that way in 1846 and 47 and 48. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book that talks about this feeling and also the settlement that was immediately established by the saints that were on the ship Brooklyn. Although disappointed that the California coast now belonged to the United States, Sam was determined to establish the kingdom of God there. He sent a group of men to a valley several days' journey east of the bay to found a settlement called New Hope. There they built a sawmill and a cabin, then cleared the land and sowed acres of wheat and other crops. Sam wanted to take some men east to find Brigham and lead the rest of the saints to California as soon as the snow melted off the mountains the following year. Enamored by the healthy climate, fertile soil, and good harbor, he believed the Lord's people could not ask for a better gathering place. So it seems like Sam is pretty excited about California. And I guess we'll learn more about his journey east to meet Brigham Young in future chapters. Yes. You end up having a group of saints who 
decides to stay up there with Sam in California because the valley is so fertile, and they contrast that to Utah, which to them looks very barren. It kind of reminds me, my dad was accepted into medical school when he was a young man, but he decided to get a degree in engineering. And when I was growing up, I always thought, it sure would be nice if my dad had become a doctor because we would have a lot more money. (laughs) (laughs) And I think you end up with some saints in Utah who think, it sure would be nice if we had made it to California. But Brigham Young wants the main group of the saints to stay in Utah because he knows they need to be together so they can build temples and send out missionaries. It seems like to me, maybe it was from volume one. I can't remember Shaylin, but there was a, a quote from Brigham Young that said, we're going to a land that no one else will want. Yeah. He was kind of like, people will just leave us alone there because it's not the best possible land. Right. You've seen what happens to the saints. When they get to Missouri, they live in an area that's where there's not a lot of other people, but eventually there's enough members of the church that they become kind of a threat to other people that live there, and they're driven out. The same thing happens in Illinois. So Brigham Young and other church leaders decide, if we go somewhere where there's no settlers from the United States, no settlers from Mexico, now there are Native American peoples living there, but they don't see that as the same kind of risk as living among other Americans because that's the suffering that they've gone through in Missouri and and Illinois. In another part of the chapter, we catch up with Louisa Pratt, and she is terribly ill. She's very sick with a fever, and she is just miserable, but she gets to winter quarters. Can you describe a little bit more about the conditions in winter quarters, and then what is Louisa facing? So when Brigham Young leads the saints out of Nauvoo in February of 1846, the initial plan is that there will be an advanced company of saints that makes it to the ultimate destination in the American West that same year. But they have difficulty making it through Iowa because it's muddy. They decide to send back relief to the saints in Nauvoo, and there's other complexities that make it impossible for them to make it to Salt Lake City or to the area that they were going that first year. So they decide that they're gonna create settlements at this place called Winter Quarters, which is on the west of the Missouri River in modern-day Nebraska. And there's lots of camps, but the biggest of these camps is called Winter Quarters. So the saints are very poor. It's muddy there. It's cold. You have diseases from mosquitoes and other types of diseases. So it's a place that we remember today as a place of of a lot of suffering from these refugees that are there. Now, Louise's husband, Addison, has gone on a mission to the South Pacific in 1843. And it's now three years later and they won't actually be reunited until two more years. So they live apart for almost five years. She has four young daughters. So she's one of many Latter-day Saint women that sacrifices so much to support her husband being on a mission. We learn in this chapter that she gets a blessing from other Latter-day Saint women. And I was I, hoping you would talk a little bit about that and remind our listeners, we learned a little bit about the practice in Saints Volume 1, but what was this practice of women giving blessings of healing to each other. Okay, so in the New Testament, we learn about gifts of the Spirit, and one of those that's identified is the gift of healing. While Latter-day Saint men typically performed healing by giving blessings by the power of the priesthood, from a very early day, Latter-day Saint women would give healing blessings by the power of faith. And in a sermon to the Nauvoo Relief Society, Joseph Smith approved of women giving healing blessings by the power of their faith. 
And part of his point is that these women have been effective in healing other people by their faith. So how could it possibly be wrong for them to be healing people if God was answering their prayers? So all through the 19th century into the early 20th century, it's very common for women to give healing blessings to other women by the power of faith. Sometimes you'll read of a term called anointing. Sometimes women used oil when they were giving these blessings. And it's particularly common when women were bearing children or pregnant that they would call upon other sisters of the church to come give them a blessing. In the early 20th century, leaders of the church started to emphasize that it was more of a priority when someone was ill that they would call upon the elders of the church and to have a blessing given by the priesthood. So by the 1950s or so, it becomes a church policy that when you need a healing blessing, it's to be given by men that hold the Melchizedek priesthood. And if our listeners want to learn more about the practice and the current policy in, in the church today, where can they find out more information? Well, there are many topic articles that were prepared to support these chapters. And there's a topic article on healing that's available in the Gospel Library and on saints.churchofjesuschrist.org. And it's one of many articles that provide information that supplements these chapters. That's a fantastic. I also thought of a book that was created by the Church Historians Press, Matt Grow and Kate Holbrook and Jill Durr. And Carol cornwall Matson. Yes, called The First 50 Years of Relief Society. And in the introduction to that volume, as well as in the documents that are in the volume, readers can learn more about this and early practices of the Relief Society. It's free. It's in the Gospel Library, in the Church History section, and it's also available online at churchhistorianspress.org. With the difficulties that the saints are experiencing in um, their journey, in this chapter they seem to be compared to the Israelites in a couple different ways. And Eric, I wanted to know from your perspective, why do you think this comparison is significant? I find that a fascinating question. If you look in the Book of Mormon, Lehi and Nephi and their people, they see themselves as kind of another iteration of the children of Israel being delivered out of Egypt. But in the Book of Mormon, they're not being delivered out of Egypt, but they're being delivered out of Jerusalem, which has become wicked. So the Latter-day Saints who are leaving Illinois and the United States see these close parallels between themselves and the children of Israel. They very much see themselves as modern-day Israel. The first group of saints that leaves Nauvoo actually calls themselves the Camp of Israel. There's a revelation given to Brigham Young that's now in section 136 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And the first verse of that revelation says, The word and will of the Lord concerning the camp of Israel in their journeyings to the west. So the saints see themselves as being in desperate need of God's help and blessings as they are refugees making this exodus from the United States and other places that they live to this promised land in the West where they will be able to live their religion in peace. It was interesting to me also that not unlike the Israelites, that there were people who murmured, there were people who had issues, there were difficulties along the way, and then there were those that seemed to gain strength and find solace and really remained very faithful throughout all these trials. It's kind of remarkable just how many comparables there are between these two groups of people as they seek a promised land. Another interesting way that the two groups share something in common was the Lord providing food. Eric, can you tell us about a miracle that these early saints 
received as they tried to come west and they were in desperate need of food. So I think you're referring to an event that happens in October of 1846. There are a number of members of the church who were camped in winter quarters at the Missouri River, but you have others that are still back near Nauvoo and are just underway on their journey across Iowa. And they're very poor and hungry. And one day, a flock of quail comes into their camp and fills the sky, and these quail fall down on the wagons on the ground. And the men and boys run around and gather up these quail, and it becomes their food. And the saints see this as a direct manifestation of God's mercy and his goodness and his concern for them. And they make a direct comparison between this miracle and the miracle of the quail that happens with the children of Israel in the Old Testament. To me, it's interesting to look at this as a metaphor for our own lives. We're all on some kind of spiritual journey. And we have to look for those miracles and those times when God reaches out to us and gives us extra help. And we need to remember those miracles when they happen in our lives and look to them. Absolutely. It is fascinating to see how Heavenly Father is able to help these saints in their time of need. Another part of this chapter that I learned something new was a practice called adoptive sealing. So maybe we could just listen to a little clip here, and then you could tell us about this practice that I was unfamiliar with, and I think perhaps some of our listeners will be as well. Some saints also gathered into special adoptive families. At this time, saints were not sealed to their deceased parents if their parents had not joined the church in this life. Before leaving Nauvoo, Brigham had therefore encouraged around 200 saints to be sealed or spiritually adopted as sons and daughters into the families of church leaders who were friends or mentors in the gospel. These adoption sealings were performed through an ordinance in the temple. Adoptive parents often offered temporal and emotional support, while adoptive sons and daughters, some of whom had no other family in the church, often responded with faithfulness and devotion. In February, while speaking on the practice of spiritual adoption, Brigham admitted that he still did not know much about it. He deeply loved the dozens of saints who had been adopted through the ordinance into his family. He nevertheless felt unschooled in this practice and wondered about what it meant. I will attain to more knowledge on the subject, he promised the saints, and consequently will be enabled to teach and practice more. So there is a topic article on the Saints website and on the Gospel Library on the topic of sealing, and that article addresses adoption sealings as part of it. This is a practice that had started in Nauvoo, and the idea was you had a number of members of the church whose parents had died and hadn't joined the church. So these living members of the church could be sealed to other Latter-day Saint adults as if those were their own parents as if they were being adopted into those families. And typically, they were adopted into the families of prominent church leaders like Brigham Young. This practice continues to 1894, when President Wilfred Woodruff receives a revelation that emphasizes that saints are supposed to be sealed to their own families and their own ancestors, even if they weren't members of the church. So that's where we see the end of the practice of these adoptive sealings. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. What I thought was interesting is that, you know, in addition to this eternal principle of being sealed together, it also seems like it was a very temporal support as well, that they were with other friends, trusted leaders and things like that, that really were supportive to them in their journey. I just thought that this was fascinating. 
That's a good point. You have a lot of people who are new to the church. Maybe they joined without their families. They need a network of people to support them and help them as they get to the West. As we follow the saints across the plains, there's also some missionary work happening in the South Pacific. So we know that Addison Pratt is there as a missionary. And so, Eric, can you tell us what else is going on there? So in Chapter 3, when we meet Addison Pratt again, he's been living on this atoll called Ana. I think I'm saying it right. And that's part of the Tuamotus Islands in French Polynesia. He's been away from his family at this point for three years. And he decides at this point that he's going to return to the United States. Now, I don't want to spoil it, but he eventually, (laughs) in a later chapter, ends up being reunited with his wife and their family in the Salt Lake Valley. And there are a couple of things about this South Pacific mission that I find really interesting to reflect on. First, you have significant number of conversions in Tahiti and Ana and Hawaii and other places in the Pacific. It's really just incredible. I mean... We have all these stories, at least that I had heard and remembered, about lots and lots of people, the United Brethren as an example in England, joining together in in large groups. And yet we have these amazing things happening in the Pacific that I think most of us had no idea about. So the Lord is clearly preparing people all over the world to receive the gospel message. And today in Tahiti and some of these other places, you have members of the church who are fifth and sixth and seventh generation members because their ancestors joined the church at such an early point. Another thing I think about a lot here is what an enormous sacrifice the families of these missionaries made. Addison ends up being away from his family for about five years before they're reunited. Meanwhile, his wife is crossing the plains with her four daughters alone. And part of why the writers decided to tell this story of Addison and Eliza is that they kept such good journals So you don't just get Addison's perspective, but you get his wife's perspective and the the loneliness that they feel and the sacrifices that they go through while they're away from one another. And actually later in the volume, we meet a woman named Ida Hunt, who's a granddaughter of Addison and Louisa Pratt, and she plays a very interesting role. And so these people that make such sacrifices of faith, they create this legacy of faith that inspires their children and grandchildren. And it's so valuable for me, and I'm sure the listeners feel this as well, just to have this bigger picture. It makes me feel really connected with these saints and knowing that they had a lot of similar challenges to us, and if not challenges, at least feelings. And it's so great to hear it from their voices and their perspectives. I know so many of the readers of Saints Volume 1 loved hearing the stories of the families and of others less prominent, perhaps, than the early leaders of the church. And I know our readers of Volume 2 are going to continue to love Louisa, Louisa Pratt, and Addison, and many of the other families that they're going to get to know and and meet and come to love through Saints Volume 2. Eric, we're so grateful that you could join us today. And I would like to just leave our listeners with one little quote here from the famed Advance Company. As they leave winter quarters on April 16th, 1847, In the book we read, On the afternoon of April 16, 1847, the advance company began their journey under cold and gloomy skies. We mean to open up the way for the salvation of the honest in heart from all nations, or sacrifice everything in our stewardship, the apostles declared in a farewell letter to the saints at winter quarters. In the name of Israel's God, we mean to conquer or die trying. 
pretty incredible line to end off this chapter in Saints. Thanks for inviting me over to talk with you two today. I really enjoyed our conversation. We appreciate all the insight and perspectives that you brought today, Eric. And we would like to remind our listeners, we talked about a lot of topics that we referred to, and we encourage you to go and read more and dive into some of these topics that you're curious about. And also, we'd love to hear what you think. You can email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening.